0: Hello, and welcome to the Timeless Wealth podcast. Uh, My name is Jalal Madani, and I'll be the coordinator of the podcast, along with investment advisors and portfolio managers whom I have here, uh, Amy Dietz-Graham and Sean Durkin. Uh, Just a background, in this pilot episode, we just wanted to dedicate our time to introducing the podcast as well as introducing Sean and Amy. Um, They've got a lot of substance and a lot of things to say. In this episode, we'll be speaking a little bit about their background, and I do have some questions for them as well. And these are questions that I believe that our listeners, as well as our current clients and even potential clients, may have when working with or hiring or even thinking about hiring an IA um, or a PM, an investment advisor or or a portfolio manager. Uh, But before we introduce our hosts and talk with our hosts, I just wanted to take a couple minutes to talk about what this podcast uh, aims to be or, or strives to be. So the Timeless Wealth podcast, we have structured in a way where we're not only relaying um, boring certain information about the financial markets and financial news. We we can all agree that there's an abundant of those channels on YouTube, even in podcasts. So much of that, uh, but more more importantly, we seek to discuss in detail uh, relevant and and impactful and thought provoking topics and ideas. And, and and hopefully I'll I'll have some time to give you guys certain examples of what um what all that means. But uh, more importantly, that isn't. It, we seek to have an in-depth analysis of any personal and social implications of the modern wealth climate, how to plan accordingly, right? So, for example, one topic would be like women in and wealth and, and, and women in the investment world, uh, as well as one really off topic nowadays is millennials in the investment. Um, Markets Insider always comes up with, uh, with articles about millennials and, and how the uh, current climate, how the current capital climate is really affecting, for instance, millennials, and in the future will probably affect Generation Zs. And by doing so, we help to grow and develop our listeners' financial intelligence to perhaps impact the way they think about wealth and and wealth planning, and in return, increase their confidence in financial planning and investments. Uh, we seek to build and enhance awareness of the Durkin Dietz brand, uh, who's run by uh, portfolio manager and investment advisor, Sean Durkin, and his business partner, Amy dietz um And the Durkin Dietz brand is generally about a conservative stewardship of our clients wealth as they pass through critical stages of their financial lives. And that includes, for instance, wealth accumulation as they approach retirement in their working years and as they're approaching retirement. Wealth decumulation as they journey through retirement. Uh, one very important uh, topic and uh, service that the Dirk & Dietz brand renders and, and offers is intergenerational wealth transfer. Uh, I was uh, in a webcast a few weeks ago where where it was mentioned that about 60% of wealth uh, disappears after the third generation of wealth transfers, disappears after the third generation. So planning intergenerational, for example, wealth transfer is, uh, is very crucial. Um, the Dietz grant also services and renders estate and tax planning. Uh, and in, in a nutshell, uh, Amy and Sean and the, and the group, the Dietz group, seeks to become the destination family os- office for families. We seek to become a home for clients with a world-class financial advisory family office where we, where the group will make every effort and strive to ensure that our clients and their families and their heirs are properly positioned to be financially successful as they progress through each and every stage of their financial journey. Podcast is in a way to, is a way to connect with our clients and even prospective clients by uh, taking part in key discussions and pieces of information to enlighten our listeners. Uh, to, to give them some confidence in the investment world, uh, perhaps impact the way they think about investments. We know that the top five values of clients is proactive advice uh, to bring them financial security and financial confidence. Uh, Family is a very important one, securing their children's financial and overall well-being. Uh, and that includes for anywhere from education to wealth transfer uh, and the likes. Uh, allocating capital and investing in a conservative, responsible manner, rather than just you know going all in like poker game. And time is of important essence as well. Feeling a sense of control in in our clients' lives that is very important to to all of us as as humans. We want to feel a little bit of control in our lives. We want to be able to live us and the clients we want to be able to live and the life that they envisioned, um, a life that is directed, a life that is empowered, purposeful, and inspired where they're actually living the uh, uh the life that they originally intended to live and overall just enjoy uh sorry enjoy a joyful and enriched life where clients are immersed in pursuits that nourish and engage their well-being so that is a little bit about the podcast uh i'm quite confident that over the episodes over the coming episodes um they'll become a little bit more clear as to what uh Uh, what the intent and what the engine is that's going to be driving this podcast. But overall, we just want to have these discussions, speak about matters that we know are important to our clients, answer some of the questions or maybe even address some of the questions and some of the concerns that uh, that our clients may have. Uh, Just a bit of information. So Sean, I have Sean here. Hi, Jalal. How are you? Good. How are you doing?
1: Good, thanks. Thanks for for having me, and uh, thank you for that introduction.
0: Absolutely. uh, My pleasure, and thank you for being here, and and thanks for uh, launching this episode with all of us. Uh, I also have Amy here as well.
2: Hi
0: there, Jalal. Hi, Amy. Uh, So, Sean, I just wanted to to dig into you a little bit. You hold a bachelor's degree in commerce from uh, McMaster University, and you also hold an MBA from Dalhousie, correct? That's correct, yes. Awesome. And... And Sean, by the way, everyone is married to the love of his life, Rebecca, right? He's got two kids, uh, Kate, 18, and Will, 15. Sean is a baseball enthusiast and an NFL enthusiast, enthusiast as well. I think you have a... Uh, you have a jersey your in your office, right? Baseball jersey? Yeah, it's a, a, nice. a signed Roy Holiday jersey, actually, that I uh, picked
1: up at a, a charity auction for the Special Olympics uh, many years ago. And it's, uh, Especially given what happened with Roy a couple years ago, yeah. he was on time of death. Yeah. It's one of my cherished uh, possessions. and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's something that I look at. Why I got it, actually, was when Roy Holiday was at his peak... He personified excellence in my mind, that he would go out and do things no other pitcher in the major leagues was doing. To give an example, uh, a complete game in today's Major League Baseball rarely happens. I think maybe there was maybe six or seven complete games across Major League Baseball the whole season amongst all pitchers. Yeah. Well, one year, and I believe it was 2006, Roy Halladay pitched more complete games than the rest of the American League. Wow. He was an innings leader, strikeout leader. Uh, he won the Cy Young Award that year, one of two he would win in his career. And uh, so I would look at him, and, and, and that would inspire me to uh, to be excellent and, and achieve, work to achieve more than what I'd initially think. Because you know, anyone who knows Roy Halladay, he was a, a, an elite pitcher, but he grew to be a elite pitcher. He wasn't, he wasn't didn't start out who mm-hmm. was actually relatively mediocre at pitching, but grew to become one of the best pitchers and ultimately ended up
0: in the Hall of Fame. Well, that's a great attitude. Um, that's that's amazing. I did not know he would be, he was pretty much outdoing every player in the in the, in the Major League. Did it for like many years, hard. too. So everyone, that's Sean. He also enjoys playing uh, volleyball. He uh, enjoys playing baseball, of course, and working out. And this is really interesting. He's found success in martial arts. Currently working towards obtaining his third degree black belt. I don't even know there's degrees in black belts. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's ten <laughs> There's ten degrees in black belt.
1: Uh, in in our style, yes, it's uh, so so the style that I'm working on right now is called Kempo. It originates uh, out of China. It's actually born of. Uh, over, over centuries, it was born of defending rice paddies, believe it or not. And, um,
0: As a defending rights bloodsurge? So,
1: what would happen is in the, uh, in the rice paddy fields, there's sometimes uh, in a, a bit of a Chinese feudal system. Yeah. And a lot of people, or a lot of warring factions, would try to take over the rice paddies of another province or, or, or territory because rice is the, was the main source of food for, for Asia, in particular China. And so my style of uh, martial art was born of, of defending your rice paddy. Which if, you, if you're not familiar. That's super cool. If you're not familiar, a rice paddy is uh, basically the, the, the rice is kind of grown <laughs> in a bed of water that's about probably three or four feet deep. And so you can imagine you're trying to fend
0: off three or four people in your rice paddy in more one. water. So that whole so that entire style of martial arts was Born out of that intent, pretty much. Uh, yep, and every martial art has a story behind
1: it. For instance, um, you know, I have a brown belt in what's called Goju or okinawa style karate, which is born of Japan and the Okinawan Islands, mm-hmm. and it's more of a mountain fighting type style, very aggressive, mm-hmm. um, versus Kempo is more balanced, you know, and defensive in nature. Uh, and then also, I have a blue belt in uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu as well, which again, in and of itself, is different.
0: Watch He's really cool. You've got more you've got more degrees in your in your black belts than than I've got degrees in general. <clears throat> uh Sean, you hold a violent belief in, and a strong belief in detailed financial planning, uh which you believe must be supported by careful portfolio management designed only for clients to support them and their families in retirement. Uh you hold the uh the intuition that if we do, I'm guessing we are you mean investment advisors and portfolio managers. <laughs> If we do our job properly, the ultimate goal is to lead our clients to build multi generational wealth for their families. And by multi generational, you mean like inheritance as well, right? Like, yeah. okay, gotcha. Yes, Sean, I have a few questions for you if you don't mind. Sure. Um, you've had a very successful career uh, since you joined the investment world, I believe, back in ninety eight, right? Nineteen ninety eight. Correct. Right. And I see that you, as I mentioned, you have more degrees than a thermometer. Like you have an MBA, a designation of a CMA, a CFP, which I assume is a. Uh, Financial planning is that a certified, a financial, planner, certified yes. financial planner? Okay, uh, FCSI and FICV. Uh, can you speak about some of those? Like, like, and what I mean by that is you've obviously put a lot of effort and a lot of time into them. Um, you've, you've achieved many, uh, uh, many designations. And I, uh, is it the, the financial plan, is it the portfolio management or the financial planning designation that's the highest in the industry? Uh, I read something about that. Um, that one one of them is the highest designation in the uh, in the industry, or one of the most prestigious. So they both are. So, on the portfolio management side, to be a discretionary
1: portfolio manager, yep. which you know Amy and I both are, mm-hmm. that's the highest level of licensing uh, in Iran, and it's uh, it's a responsibility that we would we wouldn't want it any other way, because you know obviously when you're managing a person's money with absolute discretion to do what's in their best interest. The and by discretion,
0: what do you mean by discretion? Can you, can you just uh,
1: we don't need permission to act, act on a client's account. Okay, so don't you need do it. Client, we don't need to solicit. We, you know, now there's a lot of understood uh, let's say pillars within mm-hmm. that. You know, you know, for instance we are fiduciaries, uh, we're held to the best interest standard. Of course. Uh, which we wouldn't want any other way. So you know so the portfolio management doesn't uh, you know designation, for a better way to describe it, something that we're very, very proud of. I've, I've been a portfolio manager since, I believe, 2004. And at one point, I'm not anymore, but at one point, I think I was the youngest portfolio manager of the firm I was working in. Um, yeah, I read that. I'm going to ask you about that. It's the highest level of financial planning, on the other hand, is certified mm-hmm. financial planning.
0: And that's the CFP, right? That's correct. Oh, gotcha, yeah.
1: And I guess, you know, I am asked from time to time why, you know, why I have so many designations. I think it's born of two things. One is I, I I I had a real curiosity, an insatiable, uh, let's say, appetite to learn my craft, mm-hmm. to learn it well, learn it properly. Um, and I had the time when I was younger to do it. You know, I started. I'm guessing this is before you were married, before you had kids. Well, I was married before I had kids. Yeah, before you had kids, and, uh, yeah. I was 26 years old when I when I started as an investment advisor, which led to the, led to the second. You know, the second reason why I, I dived into learning as much as I could uh, around our profession is you have to somewhat front load credibility when you're young in this industry and you don't have quite the experience that you gain over time. Mm-hmm. And uh, that led led me and, you know, Amy, by extension, did, did a similar thing, you know, to basically building up credentials that you could point to that are industry-recognized that would give clients in the early days the confidence to, to, uh, to work with you. Thank God they did because... Uh, um, most of them, the vast majority that we we worked with back in the early two thousands and the late nineteen nineties, are still with us today.
0: Wow, that's what? Nearly closing my oh, first, first client. About my twenty years, yep. more than twenty years, twenty four years, twenty four years. 24 years that, that's actually incredible. Just from just from hearing you uh, uh, you speak about that, uh, it sounds like you've got a lot of value to uh, uh, to give to your you know to your clients. But I did want to specifically also ask you about your MBA. Tell me a little bit about that. What's the story behind that? Uh, that that was actually a really interesting time in my career because
1: you know I really wanted to. It was one of those things I wanted to finish off my my uh, let's say graduate work. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get it done, and and at the time I was uh, I broke my GMAT, did reasonably well on that, and got accepted to uh, you know the Ivy School of Business, which is Western University, the Kellogg School of International Business, York University. Mm-hmm. Um, and so forth. Was, uh, I also had accepted to Queen's University as well. Wow. And I remember my manager at the time. Queen and Western you got accepted. Yes. yes that's that's yes, amazing. And, and now that would have required, uh, Western would have required me taking a sabbatical of a year. Uh, I think it was a year, maybe two years. Uh, this is going back about 12, 12 or 13 years ago, so I'm trying to remember. But, you know, the Queen's University would have required me taking two years off and so forth. And my parents' manager at the time said, well, why, why would you do that? You know why don't you put your hand up for uh, the MBA that was offered by the uh, the organization I was working with at the time? Mm-hmm. And so I did, and uh, it was great because I did get accepted. I was the only person in uh, in my uh, let's say firm like firm siloed to, to get accepted, and I got to meet all these different people from different aspects of uh, of the bank and learn a lot. And it was uh, done part time over the span of four years, and. Uh, I have some dear friends and uh still keep in contact with them and uh just learn an awful lot about how financial institutions work together and integrate, which is uh, a unique perspective relative to the colleagues in this
0: industry. Um I wanted to ask you, earlier you said something uh, along the lines of uh that you still had your very first client that you had and, and uh yeah. from uh from what twenty-four, twenty-four, twenty-five years ago. Yeah. Uh how did you manage to keep your like like these clients? Like what was I I know in your um, uh, with your career at the bank, you started working with high net worth uh, individuals and high net worth clients early during your career, correct? Mm-hmm. How did you manage to 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 distinguish yourself amongst them um, in a, a you know in, in the financial world? And how did you manage to keep some of these clients for 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 twenty four twenty five years? Uh, that's almost as old as I am. So, yeah, yeah. you know, how, how did you do that? How did you manage to keep them for so long? Well, I think
1: it's, it continues today, I mean, that's something that's cornerstone to what I mean I do. It's yeah. it's a strong. You know, you want you want to serve your client in a very sincere, um, honest way. You want to have a, a great deal of candor with them. You want to make sure that you're providing them the best guidance you possibly can, which speaks to again, you know, the experience side, but also the uh, the accreditation and, and education side. And by honesty you also mean like the good news and the bad news yep. as well. Yeah, right? uh, sometimes you, you you want to be discussing with a client and, and telling them what, what they need to hear rather than what
0: they want to hear uh, sometimes. Does uh, does the topic of death come up too to that? Like some people, you know, I can only imagine like, you know, mo- most people, maybe the vast majority of people, they don't want to think about, you know, their death and stuff like that. Uh, you know, for estate planning and 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 well, they actually do to
1: all I they will talk
0: about it. I mean it's uh, especially as they
1: get more as they get older and more contemplative, they, yeah. they start looking at those things. It's a reality, they understand that. I don't think anyone enjoys talking about it, but but it's something that they they you know, our clients recognize needs to be looked at because what, what's happening with their clients is they're they've all they've all basically built up uh, a, a total net worth where they're worth more today than they've ever been in their whole lives. Yeah. And uh, what was a, somewhat of a foreign concept to them 20 years ago is very real today, which is they, they are actually applying multi-generational wealth. And that, uh, and that would be a topic of a future podcast where that oh, a whole a whole set of, of things to consider when, uh,
0: when you're in that fortunate situation. Awesome. Well, thanks, Sean. Uh, th- thanks for all that, uh, that information about yourself. Um, definitely looking forward to having some uh, really cool discussions with you. Uh, on to Amy. Amy, so you are educated in actuarial sciences and financial economics. You perhaps.
2: got that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So what is that, like a triple major, double major?
2: Well, actually, I started off in actuarial sciences, really thought, you know, I love math, and said, yeah. you know what, I think I want to be... You a... love math.
0: Who love math.
2: And I said to, and I remember, I said to my calculus high school teacher, I said, what what do I do? What, What jobs do I pick? Yeah. And he said his biggest regret was that he didn't become an actuary. And I said, I have no idea what an actuary is. And I went home and I looked it up and I said, sure. I'm always thinking about that now. What's an actuary? Well, What's it's it's looking. They work a lot of times for insurance companies or reinsurance companies. A yeah. lot of data, uh, statistics, uh, modeling. And I thought, you know what? Sure, I like that analytical aspect. That's what I'll do. Yeah. Very early on, I realized I like the analytical side, but I wasn't quite sure I wanted to commit to an actuary. Mm-hmm. So I brought a note and said, I'll focus on financial economics and math, you know, see how it goes. And, you know, fast forward a few years later, uh, when I was getting set to graduate, still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, you are
0: graduating from Western, right? Yeah, yeah, I went
2: to Western. So when I was graduating, I picked up the phone and said, "I my, my whole goal, I'll tell you this, is I hate to move. So I didn't want to move from Western you know, back to my small town, and then have to figure out the job and then move again. So I said, before I graduate, I have to find something. So I went on this mission, and my mission took me to cold calling all sorts of people in the industry, in the financial industry, and I would just have coffee chats with them. What do you do? What do you like about it? What's your day look like? And lo and behold... That's great. Well, one of the people I met uh, worked at a hedge fund company at the time, and he said, you know, I'm going to introduce you to a few other of my colleagues. And along the way, that's how I met Sean. So literally from a a cold call coffee chat with a stranger, uh, I got introduced to Sean. And when Sean told me about his day-to-day and what he did, I thought it was the perfect marriage of, you know, the analytical side that I love, but the people side.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. You want it to be more like personable. You, you, you want it. to have those connections. You got it.
2: And, yeah. and Sean might not tell you this, but he was a very early adopter of the financial planning. So it's very common now that advisors do financial planning. But back when I started 15 years ago, it wasn't that common. It was still more so just about the portfolio and not so much about the planning piece. They were kind of kept separate in mm-hmm. a lot of ways.
0: I'm going to ask you about that. Uh, I don't know. If, I mean, I certainly probably don't have the biggest of uh, of or the clearest of understanding as to the difference. So I can only assume some of our listeners may, may not uh, fully be able to differentiate between the two. So I'm definitely going to ask you about that. Um, the, the, you have some really cool, uh, I would say milestones. Early. You were a speaker at various conferences and events. Uh, you were quoted, quoted in the Globe and Mail. That is, that, that is pretty <laughs> damn cool. You are quoted in the Glo- Globe and Mail, CBC News, the Canadian Press and Advisors Edge. Jeez, you're going to be soon that Kathy Woods <laughs> <a general laughs> of Canada. Uh, you were interviewed numerous times on on Bloomberg, right? And uh, by Bloomberg, that, that, that's really cool. And you were this is one of the coolest ones. You were a, you are you were a mentor. You are you were a mentor for still a
2: mentor. You're yeah, still, a still a, a mentor.
0: in capital markets. Definitely gonna ask you uh, uh, some you know regarding some of that. Uh, you believe successful practice at the cores with strong portfolio man- management and financial planning. Uh, Well, here's a really cool, uh, interesting thing you said. You believe that the success of our clients fuels the success of our business. Correct. You got it. There definitely. So I, there. Go ahead.
2: I grew up in a small town on a farm, so my yeah. my hometown is a little town called Mildmay. Not mm-hmm. many people are aware of it. It's new. it was No, awesome. so the I always you know for for our older folks would know if you remember Walkerton, the whole water crisis, you yeah. know, several years ago. Mildmay is a little farming community, about you know five minutes south of Walkerton, up in the Bruce Peninsula area. Um, so growing up in in a small town, there wasn't a whole lot of you know, in investment discussions. A lot of people there save their money. They have the one person in town that kind of takes care of it, and there's not a whole lot of discussions around And by
0: save, you mean just saving cash?
2: You got yeah, it. Cash. A lot of cash or a lot of, you know, just product-type stuff, but there was yeah. no link of how those investments made sense to their personal lives, and that's where a financial plan really bridges those two, two things. It's bringing your lives and the money piece together in, in you know, a planning document that can live and breathe and be updated and, and, and grow from there. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, you mentioned that you're from a small town of uh, Mildmay, you said it was called, right? You uh, got it. That's pretty inspirational to, go, to come from a small town to, to, the, to the big, big yeah. city of Canada, at least. Yeah. yeah that's, that's pretty awesome.
2: You know, I don't know
0: too many people that made that transition from, like you said, it was <laughs> kind of like pharma. You made that transition from like, you know, because I'm only picturing like you know, classic, like, farmers and stuff, like, all the way to the investment world. Like, well, that's <laughs> a beautiful transition. That's a really interesting transition.
2: But I think on my resume, Sean, or Sean will attest to this. Uh, my summer job was working on a chicken farm, and, uh, <laughs> been, you know, chicken farm. I clearly know the value of a dollar. Uh, I've worked awfully hard for some of those dollars in my summer job, so... <laughs> That's we appreciate awkward. them, and, and we're we're very cautious when we manage their money.
0: So I do have some questions for you, uh, Amy. But before I get there, you are you love spending time with with family outdoors. I assume camping, right? Um, camping and just basically just being like just outdoor outside. Activities. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you love swimming. I guess that's one of your favorite hobbies, or just hanging out at the cottage. You got it. Uh, you are married to your knight in golden armor. It's <laughs> a shiny armor nowadays. I don't know. Golden armor. Uh, Chris, I believe, is his name. You correct? got it. Yeah. Uh, you've got two kids, four and one.
2: Yeah. That must
0: be. Uh, those would be little, <laughs> hey, I'm not sure you want to have armor made gold. It's a little soft. <laughs> uh, now, you believe, here's what I want to ask you something. Now, you believe that great investments are nothing without a great financial plan. And a great financial plan is nothing without great investments. I, I want to ask you about that. How a great financial plan is nothing without great investments. But how would you explain how great investments are nothing without a great financial plan? If I'm good at investing, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Why would I need a financial plan? Like what, what value does that add to my life? It's a true to, to, to
2: us, it's a true measure of how you're doing to reach your own personal goals. Oftentimes we'll see clients to say, you know, I got X amount of rate of return compared to, you know, the TSX index or the S and P 500. Yeah. Those are all very interesting statistics, but not knowing how it relates to you personally. Is that a good number? Is it an adequate number? Is it, do you have a shortfall? Depending on your lifestyle and what you're trying to achieve, it's actually pretty meaningless. So where a financial plan, again, it bridges that gap to say, okay, what rate of return do you personally need? Think of it as your personal benchmark to achieve what it is you're trying to set out, be it saving for a children's education, be it saving for a a vacation home, whatever your goals are, it's a way to actually measure your own personal success.
0: So if I understand correctly, the financial plan not only takes into account the quantitative measures, but... It also links those those numbers, those quantitative measures to your own personal qualitative um, dreams or goals or, or aspirations.
2: You got it, you correct?
0: got it. mean, that reminds me of, there's a famous
1: uh, Monty Python skit years ago where they're, they're talking about, you know, Olympic, um, uh, let's say sporting events never really made it to the Olympics, for lack of a better way to describe it. And one of the ones they talked about was the uh, the marathon for the directional challenge. And what it was that a whole bunch of people lined up at the starting line, mm-hmm. the gun went off, and they all scattered in different directions. Yeah. It's quite hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's kind of like investing in a plan. You, just, you can run as fast as you can. If you're running in the wrong direction, or if you're laying, laying your ladder on the wrong wall, yeah. you then wake up and realize, well, how did I get here? And the problem with not having a plan is yeah. when you get to where you're going, you can't go back in time to fix it. Sure, true. And you're, you're there.
2: Well, and think of your financial plan like your business plan. If you're a business owner you know, and a successful one, you have a business plan, and you know what goals you're out to, to achieve and how to measure your success. Yeah. A financial plan is for individuals to measure their own personal success in their own lives.
0: So, like, if I want to, I don't know, maybe one day buy buy a private jet.
2: Yeah. Your your financial
0: plan will take that into account. put
2: it in as your goal.
0: (laughs) All right, cool. I got some questions for both of you guys. Um, Just basically, you know, speaking about that, about the financial plan. Now, here's the first question. This is all, of course, in light of what's happening. We're we're recording today. Uh, We're we're recording this podcast today. As, you know, just this morning, Russia was... um, uh, uh you pretty much launched strikes against Ukraine um, and, you know, who knows, World War Three or not might, might be on the edge. But I wanted to have some uh, I have, I've had some questions about that. But before I get into that, I wanted to ask you guys in, in the Canadian market, for example, what is the difference between investing in real estate versus, you know, in, investing in the markets? And the reason I'm asking this is because you guys have mentioned the financial plan. I've linked, I've I've addressed the issue of like, well, if I'm good at investing, why do I need a financial plan, right? What is the difference between real estate and a market? Why hire an IA, you know, to, to invest for me when I could just, you know, as Canada has shown in the past five years, Canada, the Canadian real estate market, whether in Toronto or in Vancouver, when I could just put my money in real estate and let that grow over time, right? Like I believe one one of the one of the statistics showed that within COVID alone, property shot up like what twenty to thirty percent or something like that, like. Why invest with advisors? Why invest with portfolio managers when I could just put my money, for example, in real estate? I'll leave it to you guys.
2: It's a good question. It's a question we think it's part of the equation. Sean and I would never sit here and say, "What you know, don't invest in in real estate. Just invest in the financial markets." One, it's uh, we're we're here to do what's in your best interest. So you know, we'd be disingenuous to tell you otherwise. But it's part of the equation. It's not all of the equation. I think a fixed asset like real estate is a good investment longer term. Mm -hmm. It's also kind of easier, in a sense, to invest in real estate for for the average person because Mm -hmm. it's not priced to market on a daily basis. You don't see the... The you know the numbers flashing on the house of the price value fluctuation. It's it's easier for clients to think longer term about an asset like that. Yeah. Um, but it's not the whole equation. Again, it's it's had a good run. Who knows if that run will continue, right? And so you want to make sure that you're diversified enough, having a good mix of financial assets and hard assets, and plus liquidity. You can't live off of the house. Now, maybe you do rent it out, there's some some income there. Yeah. but again, you want to have the flexibility. In your overall plan?
1: Yeah, well, I really agree with you, that, And I think, you know, when you look at real estate, it is an asset class. It's mm-hmm. not meat, it's a class. Mm-hmm. And any asset class, be it, you know, you know, owning shares in a company, uh, owning bonds that pay you interest, or owning real estate, they're going to have their own uh, characteristics of risk and reward. Mm-hmm. And um, not all assets go up in unison all the time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they do, but rarely. And, um, and that's where
0: the importance of diversification comes in. Like it,
1: that's the importance of diversification. I'll give you a small example. Um, you know, a lot of people want to own real estate and rent it out in Ontario, which is probably yeah. going to be a good thing long term. Uh, the problem with owning real estate or uh, renting out real estate in Ontario is that whereas BMO, for instance, using that as a as an example, or TD Bank, or Canadian National Railway, or Cisco, or Microsoft they They regularly grow their dividends on average anywhere from ten to twenty percent per year Then that's what they pay out to their shareholders as a portion of profit. Well, you can only raise your rent in
0: Ontario one percent a year oh so the, you're saying that the increase through for example shares or, or- in ways other than real estate increases at a faster rate much right. faster rate you know and depending on you know if there's rent controls in place you know the
1: regulatory environment of being a landlord is is uh is, is not an easy one, um, you know, and, and you, you, could, you could walk into a lot of issues that you would not have foreseen that frankly are not, uh, you know, that don't come with only, you know, shares of high-quality companies that reward shareholders for being long-term owners. I, I think those are some uh, really
0: crucial, important points uh, to you, differentiate. You, asked, you
2: touched on kind of a second part in that question is why yeah. have an advisor?
0: Yeah, right. Mm-hmm.
2: And and it's a good question to ask. Our, our clients are highly educated. You know, yes, we have lots of designations, but so do our clients. Like our mm-hmm. clients are really smart people in their own right. And some are in the financial industry themselves. Some are in, in many different industries. They usually don't have the time to do it, though. So they look for us to sit on the same side of the table, similar to a CEO, CFO type model, you know, CEO of their household to say, here's what we're trying to do. Here's our goals and what we're trying to achieve. And our job, Sean and I and the team, is to really run it on a day-to-day basis for them. Um, And then report into them on a regular basis to say, here's where we're at. Here's where we need to make tweaks and changes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking back at their plan ongoing.
1: And the other thing, too, is that when when someone's working without um, Mm guidance, you know, a lot of being successful as an investor runs very counter to what makes you comfortable emotionally as a mm-hmm. person.
2: Yeah, that's true.
1: And it's very, very difficult to, to separate the two. That's, that's, that's very interesting. That's where we need to, you know, that's where we can work with our clients and engage them when it's absolutely very, very hard to make the, the, the best decision in
0: their best interest because what feels good at the time is bad. Mm. Well, you're, you're, you're definitely getting ahead of me here because I was actually going to ask you, what would you want your, your your clients or your listeners to know now about the investment world, uh, in light of what's happening right now between Russia and you know between Russia and Ukraine? Like, suppose I'm an investor. I'm going to be honest with you. Suppose I'm an investor and I have my money in the, in the market. I'm just going to mm-hmm. want to pull out because mayhem looks like it's about to happen. You know, we all know. Who knows? Maybe some some of the presidents may want to drop start dropping nukes around. Right, that, that is just full blown. So what what would you tell uh, uh, your listeners? Like, what would you teach me if I was your
1: client? Well, you know, it's funny. You, you know, the, the, to the investors that panic and sell these kind of environments, there's some very sobbing investors on the other side of the deal that are buying those companies up. Yeah. You know, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger uh, jump, jumped to line in that case. And, and I mean, look, at the end of the day, and they actually famously said, Amy, what is it? They, you know, when, when everyone's greedy, be fearful, oh. and when everyone's fearful, be greedy. Um there, there's two things you want to do in this kind of circumstance because there's always going to be what, what I call the crisis de jour and I'm not minimizing what's going on over there. I think uh, I think it's very concerning in the short run and I think that, mm-hmm. uh, I think that there will be a response and a rectification, but it could take some time to iron itself out. That said, um, the two things you want to do in this environment, assuming the following, right Amy? Mm-hmm. Assuming you're properly diversified by asset class, you're properly diversified by industry. You're not speculating, mm-hmm. and you're probably diversified um, by geography. If all those things are in place, I.e., you're investing like an institution or a pension would invest, the second best thing you can do is ignore it, do nothing. In other words, just, just like the storm yeah. path, like yeah, just ignore it. Um, you know, the fact that Ukraine's rolling or Russia's mm-hmm. rolling in, rolling tanks into Ukraine is not going to stop Microsoft from doing their day-to-day business, or Amazon, or Google, or k or Rayleigh, or TD Bank, etc. Yeah. The best thing you can do, though, is if you do have money available to invest, it's always, always, always better to invest when you're more nervous to do
0: it.
2: Well, it's... always well,
0: better cause... to invest when you're more nervous to do it. It's
2: funny. So I'll give you an example. I was talking to a client yesterday, and a new client yeah. um, came into some cash, and we were talking about investing it. And we have this conversation all the time, and I said... Yeah. We're going to have a conversation at some point in time. I don't know when it will happen. You know, the one thing I can predict is a crisis will always happen at some point. We just don't know what kind or for how long it'll last, but we know it will happen in the future. And I said, we're going to talk about investing. You're going to think we're crazy. It's not going to feel good because it's counterintuitive. You know, when it feels good. We're telling you to lean into that experience as opposed to pull away from it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sure, Sugar, you know, what happened uh, overnight? Uh, the client called me this morning He said, I didn't know we'd be doing this on day one. And I said, let's <laughs> <see> it. <laughs> It's a real good
0: Conversation.
2: Station. Um, and again, that happens a lot. Of you. It happens all, all happens all the all time. All the time. Um,
0: so you guys are like that inside voice reassuring the client that, hey, you know what? It's bound to happen. But... Do you guys take that into account when you're creating your models, your, your whatever idea, the financial climate? Or do you guys take it, these into account, like these issues you, into you account? Know you model those sorts you're ready of scenarios.
2: For it. Exactly, we know that crises will happen. We know that markets pull back. We know that we'll go through difficult times. You know, two thousand and eight was a real game changer for a lot of people. That one was a very deep crisis that lasted a longer period of time. And it lasted about eight months. In the middle of it, it felt like it was going to last forever. But in hindsight, it was about an eight-month period of disruption. As long as you stuck with it, and that's one of our most proudest moments that Sean and I ever went through, was we didn't have a single client panic and sell their money in 2008. Now, some of them were probably panicked, but they didn't do the ultimate hit the button to sell. Mm-hmm. They held through it. And when the market turned after that crisis, it turned quick. There was no way we could have timed it. There was no announcement saying, crisis over. There was nothing. Nobody was waving a flag. It just turned. And if you weren't invested, you missed it.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, some, some people, some of our clients, um, you know, I was just on the phone with one of those clients uh, that, did, that did exactly this part mm-hmm. of this podcast. Well, they yeah. actually bought yeah. companies mm-hmm. the, at the height of the 2008 crisis. They bought companies at the height of the COVID market crash. Mm-hmm. And that that's your opportunity. If you could flip your paradigm, and when you look at these kind of circumstances, now I have no idea. I think Joel, you asked me earlier on, you know, could the market go lower? I have no clue. I mean, even if I gave you an answer, you know, I'd be talking on my rear end. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if you buy high-quality, great companies that, that reward their shareholders and produce goods and services that people need to use every day. These type of circumstances could be game changers from a personal wealth mm-hmm. standpoint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because when you're buying, when everyone else is selling, whenever when there's a lot of fear, you'll journey out three years and be really happy that you did. And I'll tell you that you know we have a couple clients that in the, in the height of the financial crisis were buying TD Bank, Bank of Montreal, Bank of Nova Scotia at our recommendation, by the way, mm-hmm. and. They were getting dividend yields on those stocks north of 11%, 12%. Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. Um, that would be equivalent today with the dividend growth of those companies. Some were neighborhood of 25%, mm-hmm. cash on cash. Wow. And they were buying these stocks at $20 a share. Mm-hmm. And now they made, like now, what, TD, like TDs at 103 101 So you've made literally 500% on your money in 12 years while clipping at time of purchase 10% plus per year. Mm-hmm. Like, that's amazing.
0: That's amazing. Okay, that's a career in and of itself. Like, wow, well, yeah. to do it at the time was just absolutely gut wrenching. It takes a lot of bravery. So it sounds like you guys really ingrain your your clients with that resiliency against you know against these bumpy against the bumpy road. Like, yeah. it's educating. It's it, educating. It's it's but it's really educating.
1: The emotional response, because everyone understands in hindsight that you know market corrections and and bear markets are actually great wealth creating opportunities. Yeah, mm-hmm. it doesn't
0: feel like it at the time. I was just going to say that knowing something and feeling another thing are two complete things. Like mm-hmm. it makes sense to buy in a bear market, you know, when everything is low and everything looks like the end of the world is coming, but it does feel like. It's the wrong move to make sometimes, right? but if it, it's as you said, you know, if it's, if, it, if you feel like it's the wrong move, it's probably the right move. But you, you also have to look
1: at the flip side of it. I mean, you, you've been very good at describing this, but it, you know, when you're when you're investing for the economy, Warren Buffett talks about this all the time. When he says, you know, bet on the United States. He's a big proponent of the S and P 500. Yeah. But here's what you're making as a global investor: you're betting for the aggregate functioning of Hundreds and hundreds of millions of people that are going to get up every day and try to make their lives better through going to work, feeding their family, Mm. all these different things, educating themselves, the aggregation of people trying to make their lives better piece by piece, day Mm. by day. To bend against that is enormously risky long
2: term. Well, and human ingenuity, right? Like, you know, every crisis will feel different and we'll say, oh, it's different this time. We're never going to figure this out. And it just, you know, those kind of panic stricken comments, but humans tend to get together and we start to figure things out and we overcome it. So it's getting over those bumps. If you can just withstand it. Yeah. And again, clients could do this on their own, but it's very, very difficult to override that emotional, uh, you know, roller coaster. And that's where we come in again, reminding them of the plan. We model things out. We look at it, bringing back that rational sense of what we're trying to do yeah. to, to ease their nerves.
0: So I have, I have one last question for you guys. Um, uh, Sean, earlier you said that your clients, even over time, uh, are worth more, or they have more money than they've ever had, mm-hmm. right? Now, my question to you is this. Let's assume I, you know, I have a successful career, I lead a successful career, uh, I make, let's just say, $300,000 a year, let's get, say I get taxed at $100,000, that's $200,000 left, I spend $100,000 to live my life, and I'm saving $100,000 a year, mm-hmm. right? After 10 years, uh, that's a million dollars. So by default, I'm growing rich. By default, I'm worth more than at the initial uh time frame of that ten year period, right? Mm-hmm. My question to you, as you know, to you and Amy as well as as investment advisors and financial planners and uh, portfolio managers, the hundred thousand dollars that I have that I'm saving every year, if I was to give it to you, what value do you add after the ten years? What value did you add? When by default, I would have had a million dollars saving out $100,000 a year. I would have I'd had a million. What does your plan do? What is your advice to that advisor? So,
2: to? so we, we touched on a little bit on the portfolio management side. So investing that money, make sure it's compounding at a good rate of return to achieve your goals. But there's a lot of other things that we do day to day, too. So the financial plan is not simply like, here's your retirement. Here's, you know, saving for your kids' education. There's a lot of other stuff. How tax efficient are you? Are you a person that's earning 300000 Are you incorporated? How have you set it up? What about your estate plan? Have you thought that through? How do you pass that money that you've saved on to your next generation? So on and so forth. So there's a lot of little planning pieces that we need to look at. Also from an insurance perspective, Jalal, like when you look at Setting this up, how do you want that money to, to you know, that's another asset class that we haven't really touched on is insurance. Looking at all of those different components, it's more than just the one portfolio that we're talking about. It's a lot of other moving pieces that's incorporated.
0: So it's better than just saving $100,000 every year and putting putting it in my bank account,
2: in my checking account. You got it.
0: Yeah. And, and, and let's say you saved that million dollars over 10 years.
1: Well, yeah. What you think is a million dollars today won't be a million dollars 10 years now.
0: Mm, good point. Less if, if it stays cash. You're saying that if it stays cash, inflation will, will, will
1: remove. Like in other words, mm-hmm. what you know, what one million dollars will buy today, you'll probably need one point two, one point three million dollars to buy to buy in that very same basket ten years from
0: now. So technically, I would have lost two three hundred thousand dollars had I had I invested.
1: It's it's not not that much I'm exaggerating to yeah. get the point, but Just you the, would have been lost about like inflation. Inflation's running at two and a half percent per year. Yeah which is compounding against you, you'll lose at about 100000 125000 Usually, I'd have to do the hard math and be something that big.
2: Yeah. Well, and also think in that scenario, and this is where we come through different stages of clients' lives. A lot of times, you go through a period where you're younger, maybe you don't have any obligations right now, you might be saving a lot, and all of a sudden, boom, all of a sudden, you might get married, you might have children, all of a sudden, wait a second, now you're spending a lot more, you're not saving as much. Until you get on the other side of that hump where kids are kind of starting to move out on their own and now your savings picks up again. So it ebbs and it flows. And again, that's where that planning piece works with your personal situation to kind of keep up with all the different pieces. Cause it's going to change as much as the best financial plan that we put in place, it will be totally different. And that's why you have to treat it like a business plan. It needs to be updated ongoing because your mm-hmm. situation's gonna keep it
0: has to adapt, obviously. Exactly. You know, to, to the social climate and everything. Alright, Well, those were all my questions. Did you guys have anything else you want to add? No, I I, mean, I, I really look forward to uh, mm-hmm. to coming out with you
1: know to our to our clients and to our listeners with topical uh, you know conversations around just a myriad of different things. I think it's going to be exciting. It's Absolutely. Exciting. Too, Yeah, I'm That's really amazing. excited because this is a new medium mm-hmm. where we can reach out to uh, to our to our clients and our friends and. Uh, and just share with them our thoughts on different things, and uh, I, I'm really looking forward to doing many of these.
2: Well, we have the benefit from the chair that we're sitting in. We get to live the lives through a lot of different clients, and so we've seen you know all sorts of scenarios. So this is an opportunity to share those stories that other people might be able to relate to.
0: Oh, absolutely, definitely. Some of your previous experiences, uh, you've answered a lot of questions, you know, for your for your previous clients and your you know your your clients in general almost quite certain that your future clients will have, the you know, the same questions, the same concerns. Um, so, yeah, to create a medium where where we can address these issues and talk about these topics, I think, is of, uh, of great importance. Well, thanks, Sean. Thanks, Amy. Um, thanks,
2: Sean. And, um, thanks.
0: Thank you. And we'll see, you hopefully, uh, everybody next time.